everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Tori Palmer, who is a helicopter pilot and the pilot who navigated our group around the Chugach Range yesterday for a phenomenal day in the mountains. But there were some aspects of the day yesterday that presented certain challenges, and so I thought it would be really interesting to get our pilot's perspective on how the day went, as well as ask Tori about her own path to becoming a helicopter pilot, the range of work for heli pilots that are out there, and yeah, how one ends up becoming a heli pilot for Chugach Powder Guides. So I sat down with Tori yesterday while she was on a weather hold, but we were fortunate to get enough time to hear Tori's really, really interesting story and have her shed light on this very cool and interesting sounding field while also having her pull the curtain back on how it all works. Now, just a couple other things before we get started. Over on our Gear 30 podcast, this past Friday, we posted a conversation that Paul Forward and I had about the powder skis we've been skiing this past week, and it's been quite a mix. We have been skiing at Alieska Resort. We have been out on the Snowcat, managed by Chugach Powder Guides, and we have also been heli-skiing. And in fact, we've been skiing every single day that we've been in Alaska, so I think that's seven days straight now. We had an incredible group out here, and I want to say thanks to all of them for making this trip really special. And also, thanks to literally everybody at Chugach Powder Guides for being so much fun and so professional, and y'all really are an incredible collection of great people, and you have a hell of a squad. So thanks so much to everybody at CPG. And so Henry and Rich and Dan and Murray and Bear and Eva and George and Waldo and Logan and everybody else who makes this whole operation possible. Thank you. Thank you very much for a wonderful week. And finally, I have to give a special shout out to my friend and blister reviewer and lead heli guide, Paul Forward. Paul, as we've been saying, we've been talking about this trip since 2012, and it has been so fun to come see you here in Girdwood, to ski your home resort with you, to get out in the Chugach Mountains with you, to see you on the job with CPG. It's been the best, just an absolute pleasure, and you have such a great crew and such a cool community here. I'm so grateful I finally got out here to see it. And just one other thing, we do have now our registration open for next year's Blister Summit. That will be February 4th through the 8th, 2024, at our home base of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. We've got early bird pricing open, live, and happening now, so we'll include a link for 
Blister Summit 2024 registration. You definitely want to come to this. And right now, you can come for the best price. So sign up now. We'll include a link to that registration in the show notes of this episode. And that link will show you all the information and all the details about the event and what's going on. But the punchline is, come see us, ski with us, snowboard with us in Crested Butte, February 4th through the 8th, 2024 at our Blister Summit. And now, let's talk about helicopters and how somebody becomes a helicopter pilot with the very impressive Tori Palmer. Here we go. All right, well, I am here with Tori Palmer. Tori, let's start by talking about yesterday. From my skier's perspective, we had a phenomenal time in the mountains yesterday, but I want to open by getting our pilot's perspective on our day in the mountains. How particularly challenging was it or how kind of run-of-the-mill common was it um, versus it was particularly easy, an easy day for you flying us out all around the Chugach Range? Yeah, so yesterday I would say is a relatively uh, average day flying in Alaska, per se, that the weather just constantly changes. Um, the start of the day was not necessarily sunny, right? right? It was more of like a bright gray. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a skier perspective, you guys are still able to see the tracks in front of you. You were able to go down the run confidently, um, and you could see what was coming at you. Uh, I do recall a point to where we just like stopped on the mountain at one point when the light went completely flat. Yep. And that was because you guys were unable to perceive any hazards ahead of you. We see that very similarly in the helicopter, except we no longer have our feet on the ground. So we're operating in much more of like a 3D realm. So losing that depth perception, losing where the horizon meets the sky um, can be very dangerous from a flying perspective. So a couple of the things that the guides would do to help us out that you saw yesterday would be chalking. Okay, well, let's start there. What is chalking? Right, so chalking is done at pretty much every resort. For example, when you're building jumps or any obstacles that need to be marked, chalk is basically fluorescent chalk that you're throwing on the snow that allows you to perceive depth perception at that point. Um, it's car- it's hard sometimes to kind of visualize this complete white-on-white scenario to where you don't have any reference whatsoever, but I think most skiers can identify with not being able to see the run in front of them. Um, and that comes into play with a helicopter, except you're moving a lot faster And you're also moving in that 3D realm to where if you were to get to the point that you no longer know which way is up without your feet on the ground, it's a very dangerous attitude. Um, So basically, the guides will put 
chalk markers on the ground that allow us to triangulate reference points off of the front right of the aircraft that allow us to sense the small changes of attitude in the aircraft that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see coming coming into land there. Mm -hmm. Are you saying attitude or altitude? Both. So attitude of the aircraft would be your nose level in reference to the horizon. So whether it's up or down, um, usually when you're looking at the horizon and you tip your nose forward, you can see the whole horizon be pointed down. Without that reference, you can make a small nose dip and not even know it. So the whole point for the guides is to give us as many references as possible so we can land safely. But even prior to that point, the approaches in themselves can also be dangerous because if there are like rolly points prior to the approach that isn't perceived, there's been cases in the past that have taken out helicopters um, that weren't able to see those rollies in the first place. Just fair warning, I'm going to ask some dumb questions and say some dumb things in this, but you know, what's new? It's kind of funny that I feel like we hear a lot with respect to airplanes that like, look, pilots can just fly off sort of the instrument panel and they kind of don't really need to be able to see anything. This sure does not seem to be analogous once we move over to helicopters. And I'm a little bit like, why is that? Like, why aren't we using such sophisticated instrumentation? Because the way that it seems when guides are talking about why we can't land here, you know, and kind of talking about what you're just saying about like, it resonates with all of us when you're like, you know, a flat light day when you can't really start seeing up from down and, and see in front of you. It's like, you sound like a skier or snowboarder as a pilot. And that feels not at all analogous to the little bit I know about piloting an airplane. Yeah. So airplanes are inherently stable. Um, many airplanes that the average person would consider airlines, it's a hundred percent autopilot. Um, it's the aircraft is basically trimmed out to a specific attitude, like we were talking about earlier that allows it to maintain straight and level flight. Um, there are helicopters out there that do have autopilot, um, and are certified to basically fly in the clouds. Um, the aircraft that we fly has the tools available and I myself personally am trained to use those tools. However, in the types of flying that we're doing in heliski is not in the format that would allow that to be done safely. So when you're flying off of instruments, you're usually trying to be as far away from obstacles as possible. And in heliski, uh -huh. it's you're... much more aggressive, yeah. much more point A to point B, and quite literally nosing the helicopter into sides of mountains on purpose. Yeah. Right? Fair. Okay, fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but in general, helicopters are very unstable. And even more so when you slow down um, into a hover. So that's primarily the issue there is when you slow down into a hover and think about it, you're trying to hold your point in space. 
if you don't know what your point in space is because you don't have anything to look at, you can't make corrections. So yesterday morning, we get out and actually like the first drop, it was from my point of view, I would say, because I don't have to land an expensive helicopter, just standing on top of a mountain, I thought it was pretty amazing light from a skier's point of view. And then we had a spot where it really turned and we did, we hung out um, for probably close to 30 minutes maybe. And then we were back out in the afternoon and freaking spectacular, man, it was a good afternoon. But in that 30-ish minute pause, do you think I'm making that up? Was it not 30 minutes or do you think that's about right? Uh, It was actually an hour and 10 minutes. It was an hour and 10. And the reason that I know is because I had lost comms with you guys. Yeah. And so I was paying very close attention because I wanted to make sure that I had communication with the guides. Gotcha. For multiple reasons. Yep. I actually was commenting on this yesterday. That's funny. It It's so fun to just hang out in the mountains. I mean, we were lucky. Winds were super mellow. So it was about as good as it gets. And we were in it like- It was warm. It was warm. It's close to 40 degrees. It was warm. We were skiing wild deep pow which Paul Forward was like, I this is so uncommon to be skiing not like kind of, you know, more consolidated cream cheese kind of, you know, like it was deep powder, but it was just so beautiful out. We were just like chill. It was not cold. We weren't like getting beat up by the weather. And so we were all kind of like laying down in the snow. And okay, so I was off by quite a bit, hour and 10 minutes. That delay... Do you think that had more to do? Because like our group all skis a lot of flat light. So like we could have skied. It wouldn't have been some sweet run, but like sort of defensive skiing, just get down, whatever. Was that more for the group's benefit or more like you? it's not at all wise to be trying to take a helicopter up and down in that light we had? So I believe to a certain extent it was to the group's benefit. Um you know, primarily the guides are concerned with everybody's safety as a whole. And it becomes very complicated if somebody's injured. Um, However, at the end of that hour and 10 minutes coming down to pick you guys up, that was kind of the red flag in my brain of like, this is borderline dangerous. Being that I could not see where the mountains start and stop with the sky. You could see the rocks kind of floating in the sky, but any of the other pieces of the mountain that were completely covered in snow, um, and I actually have pictures as well from the day that I'm able to show my friends back in the lower 48 that don't get to see this type of thing. Um, Yeah, when you're unable to see obstacles in front of you when we're already flying like fast and low to the ground, that's when I become a lot more conservative and try to tone it back a little bit. Gotcha. Let's bump to the afternoon. I mean, we were, the group was kind of buzzing about, I mean, we just got such magnificent light and getting on top of some really nice lines. But did it get significantly 
easier from the pilot's perspective. Yeah, she's nodding vigorously. Okay, that was some easy stuff for you. It your only job. takes a few shades of light to completely change the scenario. Um, so, I mean, what we're landing in constantly, and as you noticed, we kick up a lot of snow when we come into land. So, that's another thing that kind of presents this flat light or uh, whiteout phenomena that we have to deal with. Um, it's a lot easier when you have sunlight because as we start to kind of kick up all the snow, you can see through it to texture in the snow below it and use that as a reference point. So there's that. You're no longer worried about flying into the side of a mountain that you can't see. Um, it makes the entire day a lot more fun and stress-free when you can see where you're going. Yeah. Another thing is that you saw me do multiple times yesterday. We drop you guys off at the top. You're not going to be ready for a while to be picked up. When I have to go land myself somewhere that doesn't have a human out there basically saying, hey, oh, yeah. come land at my arm. Yeah. I have to find my own references yeah. earlier in the day. I don't know if you recalled... I was going back up and landing at the previous site because that was the only point that had chalk on it. Huh. If I had tried to land anywhere else on my own, I would have whited out, completely lost reference. Huh. It would have been impossible to land safely. So just taking gotcha. that completely out of the equation mm -hmm. and being able to land wherever I so choose mm -hmm. is, yeah, it makes the day a lot easier. <laughs> Everybody's happier. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Do you remember when you first had the thought, I think I want to fly helicopters someday? Yeah, I was looking at joining the army and I was scrolling through jobs. I had no idea what I was going to do yet. And I came across this picture of this woman holding a helmet in front of a Black Hawk. And I was like, that's badass. I want to do that. <laughs> That's pretty good. You have become that photograph effectively, I think. Awesomely so. I pinch myself constantly. Um, but yeah, I've achieved a lot of the goals that I've desired. Mm. And even more importantly, now I'm able to mentor other women to break into the industry. Huh. So that is very satisfying. Interesting. We're going to talk more about what that mentoring might look like, but... So you see a photograph, you correctly say that's super badass. And then what? What how does one how does one get to you know, I literally met you for the first time as I got into a helicopter and you happened to be sitting in the pilot's chair. Uh so how does how did you then get from seeing that photograph to, yeah. to flying with CPG? So I was a senior in high school. I went and took a demo flight with my mom. So what a demo flight looks like is you basically rent a helicopter for a half an hour with an instructor, and they let you try to fly it. They let you try to hover. Um, you kind of get the feeling of what that would be like. Now, for many people, that tends to be a little bit of a humbling moment uh, because it initially is very challenging. Mm -hmm. But for me, that challenge was super attractive. Um so from there, I just like completely focused on how to get that done. There is a major financial barrier 
to get into flying helicopters. That's about double what it would be to fly fixed wing. You're looking at about $100,000 if you do it efficiently. Um, the education. Yeah, that's no degree. That's just getting to the point that you might have a chance to be competitive enough to get a job. In any industry. And we're going to talk about some different kind of heli industries and jobs. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you'd look at the heli industry as the whole, and then they have branches of jobs that go down from there. Um, but I can confidently say that maybe 10% of those that start helicopter flight training actually get through and start working as a pilot. And that's not solely due to the fact that it is challenging because it is in fact difficult. It also requires a lot of sacrifice. Um, so if you're able to overcome the financial burden of getting there in the first place, which you can't get just standard student loans to do this kind of thing, um, your first initial jobs pay very poorly. I think my first year flying, I was working six days a week, sunrise to sunset, and I was making about 20000 so, you know, somebody that has a family and responsibilities are completely unable to do so. And so that's a lot of what I saw um, going through flight training is other people coming out of the military, doing their training, and then realizing that they're unable to continue because they have to support their families, because they have other priorities that need tending to. So... I completed my training. I went and I flight instructed as far backwards as that is. The very first job huh. is flight instructing huh. brand new students. Uh, did that for 18 months. I went and flew in the Grand Canyon for another 18 months. Um, and that's basically like a time building. That's where I was first introduced to the A-Star uh -huh. um, in slightly bigger helicopters. After and, and that, that Grand Canyon job, that was more tourism yeah 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 so um we basically just fly people to the grand canyon and they get to take a bunch of cool pictures and have a good time and for the pilot's perspective we kind of call it like a pilot factory it is one of a handful of stops along a, pil a helicopter pilot's career that would allow you to get a specified amount of flight time that would qualify you for other bigger, better jobs. Okay. So two things. So did you end up going into the army or you went sort of the private path? Yeah. So I ended up enlisting in the army reserves. Gotcha. Initially I did want to fly for the military, but I realized I'd have a better opportunity to do civilian work if I trained on the civilian side. Gotcha. So that's what I ended up doing. Okay. Now, just to be clear so far, when I asked, like, when did you start thinking about helicopters or getting into this line of work? You did not say, I wanted to be a heli pilot for skiing. Like, this wasn't really your thing. You knew you wanted to, like, spend more time with these rather incredible machines. Um, but you were looking at, quote unquote, civilian work. So civilian work is basically anything that's outside of the military. Mm -hmm. Um 
But when choosing your career, as we spoke about previously, you have to choose what sort of sacrifices you are willing to give and what kind of schedule that particular job will look like, what the pay will look like, all of these different factors. So in my mind, I knew that heli ski was going to be challenging to get to. Um, I was very interested in it. However, I had some other priorities that I was attempting to get to first. Some of those priorities to, to me would be working on longline work. Yeah. So this is the concept that there's a hook on the belly of the helicopter that you can attach, say, a 100-foot synthetic line, and you can use it to transport basically anything the helicopter can lift. Uh -huh. um, and I specifically wanted to do this in functions such as firefighting or construction-type work. Um, so... When I kind of shifted gears and wanted to focus on longline specifically, Saloy Helicopters, who happens to contract hmm. with Chugach Powder Guides, mm -hmm. uh, they are absolutely utility specialists in the industry. So I decided to come to Saloy, which happened to also slot me in one of my goals, which is Heliski. <laughs> so okay backing up to long lines you wanted to do this because you're just like okay helicopters are tricky let's make this whole thing even trickier like what? yeah it's one <laughs> yes. of the most complex tasks that you can do in a helicopter and really that's what entirely drives me is seeking the challenge huh Okay, I, I believe you, I believe you. So that's that's what you started doing. And how long have you either been doing long line work, or I don't know if that's exactly the same as asking how long have you been working with Saloy? Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned, Saloy Helicopters is a contractor of Chugach Powder Guides. Yep. Um, so I started long lining in at the start of 2020, like around the time that the pandemic started. And my avenue to basically break into that sector of the industry was firefighting. Mm -hmm. So I had a company that was willing to bring me in and show me the ropes and teach me the basics and put me to work in firefighting. And fire by no means is a easy challenge. <laughs> I learned a ton. However, I got to the point to where I wanted to fly more often and I wanted to fly more precise work. So as you can imagine with flying fire, when you are putting water on a fire, there's a great margin of error that is allowed. If you miss, you go get another bucket and you come back and you try again. Um, the form of longlining that I'm most interested in is precision. So whether that is having a human on the end of the long line and slinging them to, say, a power pole, 
and starting to conduct work that way by bringing them more components mm -hmm. for their construction project. Or specifically what Saloy does is they will move mineral drills, um, which are basically big, heavy chunks of metal into the side of a mountain to where people are down there putting it together. Um, it's very challenging, high consequence work. Um, so that's what brought me to Saloy, kind of that break from fire and just wanting that one step further challenge. <laughs> um, it sounds crazy. I'm yeah, very it, aware. It, sounds, <laughs> it sounds both crazy and badass for sure. And I'm, yeah, I'm like, I'm glad people like you exist in the world because I'd be running the other direction. High consequence, precise work out of a thing that's already high consequence and requires a lot of precision. I'm like, yeah, I was out. I was out at the first first round of high consequence and precision required. So this heli season is wrapping up pretty soon here. Are you going to be in Girdwood for a couple more weeks? Yeah. So I, I believe that CPG closes up their season on April 24th. So I'll be here through then. Then sometime in mid-May, well, prior to that point, I'll be able to go home to Oregon. I traveled to and from Oregon. Some point in May, I'll come back out and um, start some longline projects out here in Alaska. Everything's very isolated. And usually to get anything anywhere, you have to use aviation. Mm -hmm. And if you are looking to build anything out in the middle of nowhere, they'll use helicopters to sling out supplies. So that's what I'll primarily be doing in May is helping build geological camps that will support these drilling projects in the summertime. Hmm. Okay. So that's May, and then you think you'll be in that work for a good chunk of the summer, or it's all, or are you always getting knocked off onto dif different disparate projects? Yeah, so starting in June, um, when the actual drill season starts, it's when there's the most daytime in Alaska, so they like to get as much done in the summer daylight hours as they can. Um, that schedule will actually, as crazy as it sounds, will probably be about six weeks working straight, one week off. Six weeks on, one week off? Yeah, and I'll do that June through September. Huh. So this is what I mean about sacrifices. Yeah. You miss a lot of birthdays, mm -hmm. you miss a lot of family events. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's all in the pursuit of the challenge, hmm. I guess. Um, yeah, and flying in Alaska is really fun. <laughs> it's beautiful. Hmm. You've gotten a hot lap around the local mountains, mm -hmm. and this is a very small section. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm looking forward to it. Hmm. You talked a bit about mentoring women who are interested in getting into this. I don't know if you're mentoring women and men or I don't I don't know where all the heli pilots hang out. So I don't I don't know how many of them there are sort of out and about. But what does the mentoring look like and who are you talking with? Absolutely. Yeah, it is a little bit of both. 
Um, I still flight instruct at the original flight school huh. that I learned from. Huh. So that really opens up a lot of doors to talk about different things that people are aspiring to. And climbing in the helicopter industry is very much so this intricate puzzle that has to be put together correctly or it won't quite look right. That makes sense. Hmm. Um, so there's specific pathways based on a pilot's goal. Like, do you want to fly air ambulance? Do you want to fly utility? Like we've been talking about with the long line work. Um, do you want to fly rich people and private charters in New York City? Mm -hmm. There's all of these different, or Heliski. Mm -hmm. There's all of these different avenues that you can do. You really have to piece your career together properly to do it in an efficient way. If you are to take a job that doesn't necessarily help you or hinders your career, it could cost you three or four years in your climb. You don't know. So that's where mentoring comes in, both men and women. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that comes through the flight school that I do work for on the side. And some of it comes through social media as well. Um, other women that see me on Instagram um, usually just starts with a message and what they're interested in. And one of the most important things that I think I can do for them is connect them with other people in the industry that have achieved their goals, mm -hmm. their desired goal, yep. and in, help point in, them in the right direction. In the area they might specifically be interested in, whether it's yeah. air ambulance or... Absolutely. And mentoring is not always this super positive go lucky hey no matter what it's gonna be fine hey you're gonna spend a hundred thousand dollars but it'll be good a lot of that comes with it is like hey this is gonna be really difficult you're gonna spend a lot of money and be in debt and um these are the struggles that you're gonna go through but it'll be worth it hmm. so it also kind of targets those people of like that may or may not be a hundred percent committed yep. to the idea of it or might more so be attracted to how it would look to get there and hopefully prevent some of those people from, you know, starting the debt train if they're not 100% in it. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, back to heli skiing. I was going to ask you what your kind of platonic ideal form for the skiing clients like would look like what are they doing what aren't they doing except then i thought i mean there is basically no interaction between guest and pilot right i mean we're you're told like guides are like don't touch the pilot don't talk to the pilot like don't you know you we stay away and it makes a lot of sense they're trying to you know, keep a ship in the air or land it precisely, et cetera. So I'm not sure you will have much of a response on this, but maybe you do. But I have a follow-up question. But let's start with the first one. Do you, is there kind of a um, profile of like, I, I hate when clients are doing this thing or that thing, and I love it when they're doing this some other thing? Yeah, you know, I've experienced uh, a lot of different types of passengers, whether it's like flying people around the Grand Canyon that have never been in a helicopter before, and I'm 
the sole person oh. that is bringing them from point A to point B and back. Um, so I've had a lot of interactions in that sense. Yeah. Um, Ski is very different in the sense that you have the guides that fly in and around helicopters all of the time. Um, and they're trying to guide their guests in a way that is safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say the ideal guest is one that just does their best to listen mm-hmm. to the guide and what they're telling them to do. Cause usually it has a purpose. Um, for example, you know, like, carrying your skis on your shoulder, like down Mm -hmm. a slope to a spinning helicopter that the skis can hit the blades. There's so many different things that the passengers are unaware of as a hazard. Mm -hmm. So to make it as simple as possible, because everybody loses their brains as soon as the rotors are spinning, Mm -hmm. it's just a stimulus overwhelm, Mm -hmm. um, is just try to keep your eyes on the guide and just pay attention to what they're telling you. That's really all we can ask of you guys. As far as the guides uh, telling you to stay away from the pilots and those types of things. (laughs) um, (laughs) I I mean, I think that's just a general blanket uh, guidance that they give because, you know, maybe more so a little bit more as a girl, I do get random people that'll heckle me Uh or... Uh, you know, grab the seats every time they hop in. Uh, I had a guy that wasn't aware of his boot and it ripped my helmet plug out of the ceiling and also took the fire fire extinguisher out with him. You see some gnarly stuff. <laughs> so um, I personally don't mind at all if like, you know, people are having a good time and hooting and hollering, especially when we're maneuvering or whatever. But it's just also maintaining the mindset that we are focusing on a lot of different things and we may or may not be able to get back to you and have a conversation because it's loud, it's noisy, you guys aren't wearing headsets. And um, our primary job is to keep everybody safe and that's that. Yeah. And, And like you saw, Yesterday as well, there's multiple times where you're climbing in and the helicopter decides to resettle in the snow. So even when we're down on the ground and we're chilling, um, we're usually still hands on the controls and ready to catch it if it starts to move in a way that's unsafe. Mm -hmm. Here's my follow-up question. So he said, you know, with the passengers, yeah, basically, by the way, if you're ever thinking about doing this, just stick with the rule of like, don't talk to the pilots, don't slap them on the shoulder and be like, great job. Just your guides will never want you back ever. Like that, that is one of the <laughs> big rules. Like you leave the pilots alone. Anyway, in short, don't touch the pilot, leave the pilot alone. You might be having a great time in the back and stoked on your the run you just had. This isn't a party ship. Like We're working. Yeah. We're focusing on a lot of things, doing our best to keep you safe. Yeah. Here's my follow-up question. Guide behavior. Now, you don't have to name any names here, but are there certain things that a guide does or does not do that where you're like, ugh, 
please don't do that one thing or I love it when a guy does this. Does anything come to mind on that front? To be honest, flying with CPG has been awesome. Like all of the guides are really high quality, good workers. Um, For me specifically, I tend to be a more easygoing pilot in the sense of I realize there's more than one way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a super particular person. So to be honest, I don't have many complaints. Um, However, I think that that holds weight when I do ask them Mm -hmm. to change something. And usually the only things that I would ask them to change is if it directly affects safety. So like, for example, um, I've done some pickups to where the guides weren't able to get down the mountain as far as they thought they could. And so that forced a tow-in pickup, which tow-ins are something that we commonly do. However, we have to make sure that there's enough blade clearance to do so. Um, When your blades are only three feet from the mountainside, it tends to uh, be a little bit stressful, Mm -hmm. especially when people are climbing in and out and the aircraft can move. So it's really only times like that where I'm like, hey, guys, we need to do better and have a better spot than this. Mm -hmm. And I give them so much credit for not giving any pushback ever Mm. on anything, any safety concern. Mm. And yeah, we will find another spot. We will build it better. And when you come back, we'll have a better spot for you. Mm. So overall, CPG has been great. Mm. We just got the phone call. We did. From Dan. Uh, It is Sunday, uh, just turned noon, and you have been on standby. You've been on a weather hold. And so we knew there was a chance you were going to get that call from Dan and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to get out with a group. And so we've got to wrap this up in a, just a couple minutes, but I'm glad we made it this far. This is good. Maybe just as we close out here, you're a snowboarder. You love dirt bikes. You love watching Supercross on Saturday mornings. <laughs> yeah, true. Are these like some of the main things that we also should know about you? Or, uh... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that I'm trying to focus on a little bit more now that I've achieved some of my goals is to play as hard as I work. Mm-hmm. So I really try to take advantage of my time home and be able to do all those fun things, mm-hmm. you know, whether it is riding my dirt bike or in the summertime or snowboarding back home, which um, can't quite compare to your chesty pow day yesterday, but it's still a good time. (laughs) Do you get out on your board in Girdwood? So I got to go cat skiing, which is super fun. That was like a knee deep day. Knee deep day. We had several days that just go up to Alyeska, but because I'm more of like a powder seeker, Alyeska doesn't always do it for me. Um, But when I'm working here i'm working every day so that's only on weather days that i get to go snowboarding i have yet to go snowboarding from a helicopter Hmm. i'd offer to fly you but (laughs) but that's not gonna i appreciate that that's not gonna end well that's not even gonna start well for anybody so uh yeah i i can't i can't be of assistance on that one but you should try it sometime it's pretty great but get yourself a good pilot that's my that's my advice (laughs) I'll do so. 
this has been really fun. And uh, it was such a great day in the mountains. A couple of the people in our group yesterday, specifically on that afternoon, were like, that was my favorite ski day of all time. And um, that is a pretty cool thing. I mean, Paul Forward talks about that quite a bit, how frequently he hears, like, that was the best day of my life or best day out in the mountains ever. And so it's um, it's a very interesting line of work you all do. You're bringing a lot of happiness to a lot of people and doing that while you're also keeping people safe. I mean, we Paul was working his ass off yesterday. That was real clear. And so all of the precision you've been talking about, being so precise, keeping people safe, while often people are spinning out in the back of the ship because they're like, that was sick. Um, it's, it's quite a quite an interesting set of dynamics going on out there. So um, appreciate what you do and uh, what a fun day. If I had one final question, and I swear we got to let you get, go get over to the hangar. I was noticing that it seemed like you have a particular affinity for banked steep banked turns and I was like was that just dependent on the conditions that allowed for that or how much style how much individual style is allowed or is there among different pilots so I have to ask are you referring to the descents or uh to like passengers on board um it just seemed like specifically sometimes like we're turning back around to uh you want to come into a landing spot from just a different a, a different approach. Yeah. So, I mean, a part of that is just efficiency. So I have a solid understanding of the capability of the aircraft, yeah. and we'll move it to the extent that is safe to get there basically as quickly as possible. It gets your guys' money's worth, right? <laughs> On a day like yesterday, those super calm winds, yeah. um, they start as an amazing machine. Uh -huh. It's capable of a lot more than you saw yesterday. <laughs> so with that being said, yeah, it's just flying it as efficiently as possible to get your guys' money worth. As far as descending goes, yeah. we actually use it to scrub off speed, huh. just like you guys do going down yeah. the mountain. Yeah. You just don't go straight. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sideways drag helps us slow down. Huh. Well, everybody in the group were big fans of, I was like, whether that was your specific style or that's just kind of how we do, but we were out with um, somebody else on some other days and there would seem to be less of that. And I just didn't know if that was kind of weather permitting or some a style. Some of it too thing. is like you're specifically trying to give the guide a specific look. And since they ah, can't physically yeah. see what's underneath them, um, you can basically kick a pedal to kick it out of trim, which basically leans it more. And then it just makes it look slightly sharper and allows them to see straight down. So that would be more efficient of like, let's just kind of roll the helicopter on his axis right here so he can see straight down rather than me flying two minutes out that way and then back up and so on. Hmm. I'm going to let you go. I hope it's a good day out there. Good luck. Keep him safe. Get thank some, you. Get some nice bank turns. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, this was super fun. And uh, thanks for a, a wonderful day out yesterday. And, and again, to all of the fantastic guides at CPG. And shout out to Murray, who we were out with earlier in the week. And um, it's 
it's really pretty top shelf uh, what they have going on over there. And turns out it's a lot of really fun people too. So yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks so much to Tori for the conversation and for the great day out in the mountains. Thanks also once again to the entire crew at Chugach Powder Guides. You all do it in a very top shelf way. So thank you all so much. I also want to say thanks to the great Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. And finally, don't forget that registration is live for the Blister Summit 2024. So we can't wait to see you there. And we will again include a link to that registration in the show notes of this episode. So sign up and come see us and ski with us in Crested Butte. All right, everybody, take care. Talk to you soon.